0: Welcome back to the Spoken Wood Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Vanderlist. And for today's episode, we have an article that was written and recorded for us by Bob Rosieski of the Logan Cabinet Shop blog. It's titled, A Router Would Do That Much Faster, and was originally posted March 19, 2011. Now to find more great posts like today's written by Bob. Visit his website, Logan Cabinet Shop, at logancabinetshop.com slash blog. And of course, that's shop with two P's and an E. And while you're visiting, check out Bob's podcast, The Hand Tools and Techniques, and also check out his hand saw sharpening services too. Bob, you know what? We need to talk about these two distance that just came into my possession. But anyways, without further delay, let's get on with the show. I was really encouraged by the strong interest I saw in hand skills while demonstrating with the Central Jersey Woodworkers Association at the Woodworking and DIY show in Somerset this year. Our club had a bunch of demos going on at different times, ranging from card scraper preparation and use to hand cutting dovetails. I was preparing and carving a ball and claw cabriole leg during the day on Saturday, and I had a lot of folks stop by our booth to ask questions about the wood, the process, and of course the club. Of course, there were plenty of jokesters who felt the need to let me know how much faster I could cut the mortises with a router as opposed to the mortise chisel I was using. But their acceptance and understanding of my preference and methods became very clear as I politely answered their questions while I continued to work. In most cases, I would finish the mortise before I finished talking to them about it. There were certainly some misconceptions about the speed of handwork that were challenged during my demonstration, even though that wasn't the intent. But this post isn't about me. I really don't work that fast. Just ask my wife, who's learned to be quite patient when it comes to me completing projects. If I had to feed my family on the number of pieces I produce, we'd have all starved to death long ago. But at one time, that's exactly what guys like me were doing. They used their hand tools, the same types of tools that I use, to make their living by producing what was arguably some of the most beautiful and technically challenging furniture in the history of man. In addition, they did so with unbelievable speed. In fact, they were capable of producing pieces in less time than it would take most of us using machines today. Guys like me are fascinated by this. It's one of the reasons we study the old methods and the old furniture. We become not only amateur woodworkers, but amateur archaeologists as well. We look for any clues we can find either through research or through experimentation, that will shed some light on how they worked and why they made the choices they did. As an example, we can look at old shop estimate books. These are great resources for estimating the amount of time that it took to build a typical piece. We know from different sources what a typical journeyman's wage would be during a particular time period. Based upon the typical wages and prices for different furniture forms listed in books like the 1772 Philadelphia Furniture Price Book, we can estimate how much time it took to build different pieces of furniture during the period. One of the simplest examples can be taken from the 1766 Estimate Book from the Lancaster, England firm of Robert Gillow. Mack Headley, master of the Anthony Hay cabinetmaker shop in Colonial Williamsburg, wrote a fantastic article for the 1999 issue of American Furniture that goes into great detail on the workings of different shops during the 18th century. If you're interested in period furniture, and the history of the shops that built it, American Furniture, the annual publication put out by the Chipstone Foundation, is a wonderful resource. The picture The piece that Headley described was a simple chest of drawers from the Gillabook. Based on the price for the piece given in the book, Headley estimates that the piece would require approximately 66 man-hours to complete, including the finishing. At 66 man-hours, we're talking about a little over one week and three days of hands-on time for one person to complete this chest, working 40 hours a week. So they could basically build a simple chest in five to six modern work days which would be the equivalent of three to four 18th century workdays. Then, they'd spend the remaining time on the finishing, probably a couple hours per day, spread over another week or two, to total another two or three modern workdays. I'd be lucky to have all the rough-milled boards hand-planed in a week, forget about completing the entire chest of drawers. That would probably take me another two months. It's clear from estimates like these that these guys were extremely fast, I don't think most of us today could build a chest of drawers like this with machines in a week using solid wood and traditional joinery methods. Forget about using only hand tools. This begs the question though, how did they manage to work so fast? We can make some educated guesses based on other historical information, experimental archaeology in our own shops, and those like the Hay Shop, and by inspecting old furniture in museums and antique shops. Some of the answers are easy, others aren't so obvious, and often our search for answers only leads to more questions. One of the easy answers boils down to experience. Apprentices spend a minimum of seven years working six days per week, 12 hours per day, just to earn the title of journeyman. Once their apprenticeship was complete, the new journeyman could be hired by the shop in which he apprenticed, head out to find employment in another shop, or even start their own shop. In either case, they would have a lot of hands-on time to hone their skills. Another way they may have learned to work faster was to specialize. It is documented that many of the special parts of a high-style piece were quite often subcontracted out. Things like carvings and turnings could and oftentimes would be sent to tradesmen who specialized in these skills and could produce the pieces much faster and at a much higher quality than if everything was done in-house. Still, there are plenty of shops, such as those of the Townsend's and Goddard's, who chose to keep all the work in-house. Another obvious way that period tradesmen saved time was by not finishing every surface to show quality. If you look at antique pieces in museums and antique shops and auctions, you'll see that surfaces on the insides of cases, the bottoms of tabletops, case backs, drawer bottoms, and many other surfaces that are not seen in the final piece were left very rough. It's not uncommon to find saw marks left from the pit saw or water-powered mill. 4 marks are also very frequently still visible on non-show surfaces. I've even seen pieces where some of the bark was still present. Some efficiencies are not so obvious, and are only revealed by careful inspection of antique pieces and some experimentation in our own shops. One example for me personally was the use of in-cannel gouges. Antique pieces often show tool marks in areas like the bottoms of scrolled table aprons, for example that obviously weren't made by a rasp or file. While they did have rasps and files during the period, I don't think they relied on them as heavily as we do today. In my opinion, the reason was speed. Any way you slice it, rasps and files are relatively slow tools. You can get fairly aggressive rasps, but they leave a very rough surface, so the surface needs to be worked with finer and finer tools, which is slow. Edge tools, on the other hand, are very fast and can leave a very clean surface behind. The problem arises with concave curves. Chisels can't get into the concavity, and out-cannel carving gouges have to be used at a strange angle in order to pair vertically with them. In-cannel gouges, however, can make vertical pairing cuts and leave a clean-cut, perfectly-shaped, concave-curved surface in just a few seconds. In fact, in Peter Nicholson's book, The Mechanic's Companion, the only gouges he talks about in the joinery section have their bevels ground in cannel. There is absolutely no mention of, at all of out gouges. Experimenting in this way is a great way to build your hand skills while you try to understand some of the history. Several years ago, Adam Carabini put together a hand tool challenge for anyone on the Wood Central Forum who wished to participate. The objective was to build a case piece, in this case a small chest of drawers similar to the one from the Gillow account described by Mac Headley, only using tools that would have been available in a period shop, and to time yourself building the piece from start to finish. The goal was to work as efficiently as possible, and then to share with the rest of the group what you learned and how you handled different situations. A bunch of folks got involved and shared their findings and results, and it was a lot of fun to learn from each other. Regrettably, I wasn't able to participate at the time, but at some point, I would still like to try the experiment. I think it would be interesting to see how long it would take me and anyone else who wanted to participate, and then compare our times to the time noted in the Gillow account book and share what we learned. I don't know if Adam reads my blog or not, but I may have to get in touch with him and see what his feelings are on bringing back the challenge. It could be a fun experiment, again.